you have a Bible, you can turn to the opening uh, chapter of Hebrews. We're going to look at just a short selection of, of verses, the first two and part of, of the third ver- verse. Uh, Jack alluded to the fact that this is Reformation Sunday. Maybe some of you were aware of that. Uh, the final Sunday of October commemorates uh, within the Protestant church uh, the, the start of the Protestant uh, Reformation, Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. Maybe uh, some of you are also familiar with uh, the five solas of the Reformation. Jack alluded to those as well uh, in his prayer. Uh, sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Uh, solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Fide, uh, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Deo gloria, God's glory alone. These are core principles, guiding uh, principles uh, of the Reformation. And each of those are actually reflected in this, this brief span of verses uh, that we're going to look at this morning. Hebrews 1, 1 through the first part of, of chapter 3. Uh, most especially, sola scriptura and solus Christus. Uh, Hebrews has been described by some biblical scholars as the most theologically developed book in the entire New Testament. Now, for many of us, if you're familiar with Scripture, the book of Romans may come to mind, Paul, Paul's epistle to the Romans, as a comprehensive, systematic treatment of the whole of the Christian faith. Well, Hebrews is too, but from somewhat of a different organizing principle. Um, from the very beginning, as we'll see in these opening verses, Hebrews' concern is to show where Jesus Christ stands in relation to the whole of God's revelation. That Jesus Christ, the Son, is central in all of Scripture. Sola Scriptura, cr- uh, Scripture alone leads to solus Christus, Christ alone, that we might live by faith in Him alone, as those saved by grace alone, all to God's glory. So let's give our attention to this span of verses from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 into verse 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. Uh, We ask this morning as we consider your word that you would direct us to Christ. uh, Described here as your final word and may we find encouragement to live by faith in him. We ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I would imagine you've likely been in conversations before where uh, it seems as though there's a particular person who just has to have the final say, right? The last word must be theirs. And maybe that frustrates you uh, because the final word puts a mark on the whole. 
uh, final word brings to conclusion as a summation of, of everything that's been said. And, and so therefore, it, it bears some sort of authority. And maybe you don't want another person having that say in the conversation. Or maybe you're the one who ha wants to have the final word. You need, you feel the need to place your mark on all that has been said. A conclusion to the whole, that's it, there's nothing more to say. Uh, Hebrews begins by describing God's final say. And it's God's final say through his son. Who has the final word? Uh, well, we're told here that God himself has the last say through his son that brings the conclusion to the matter that we might be able to live by faith in him. A final word that brings resolution. And we'll see the significance of that in these three brief verses. God has spoken. And the question that we're asking is, how has God spoken? And there are a few aspects to how God has spoken that I would like us to consider. And the first is this, that God has spoken conclusively. God has spoken conclusively. Nonetheless, we, we see in these verses that God has said a lot along the way. Uh, that's the emphasis in the first verse here, uh, where the writer to Hebrews says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And broadly, what the writer of Hebrews is speaking of there, as he describes the way, these many ways that God has spoken in the past, is the substance of, of what we know as the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, that many times... And in many ways. But there's a change. Those ways, the writer of Hebrews says, stand in contrast to these last days when God has spoken by his son. And so God's prior speech is set in contrast to this conclusive word that is spoken by God's son. And so we learn something here about the process or the unfolding of God's revelation and the purpose of God's revelation. That which was long ago, God's prior speaking, was at many times. Many times. And the word that's used here is, is not simply related to times. It can also relate to parts. That God's speaking was at many times. God's speaking had many parts. And you may feel that way as you try to work your way through the Old Testament. You may find it difficult to keep up with the many various parts that you find there and to understand their relationship to one another many times, many parts. And this is a significant feature of God's revelation prior to Christ. You might say that it was partial it was not the whole. In other words, God's prior revelation was incomplete. And it was not always immediately clear how all of these parts were coming together. Uh, many times, uh, many parts, many ways, through multiple prophets, in many circumstances, over a long period of time. But all of those parts anticipated something 
greater. Uh, there was a more complete revelation that was yet to come. Other places in the New Testament uh, capture this. Uh, one, one place we can think of is, is 1 Peter chapter 1 in verses 10 through 12. Listen to what Peter says about all of God's prior revelation. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, so all of these Old Testament prophets are looking forward to the grace that was to be yours, he says they searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. And so again, we see that all of those parts through all the prophets anticipate this salvation that comes to us through Christ Jesus, the grace that was to be yours. And now the Son has come. And what God says through his son is the final word. Again, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There's a sense of finality in that statement. It's not a different word that God speaks. That's important for us to see. But it is a final word. A God's prior speech is not obsolete but it is finally made complete. And the rest of Hebrews, if you're familiar with, with this book, demonstrates this very point as it relates the entire Old Testament in all of its parts to the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's very Son. I think of what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5 within the Sermon on the Mount where he says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. So again, Jesus doesn't make the law and the prophets obsolete. Instead, he makes them complete. The Son doesn't come to make different promises. He is the final answer to all of God's promises. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that for all the promises of God, they find their yes in Him. So once again, there's finality. Uh, nothing left, there's nothing left that needs to be said. And that's important to note here in the first two verses. Each describe God speaking in the past tense. Notice how it says that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then in verse 2, it says, He has spoken to us by His Son. It's, it's describing a past event, a completed action. I would imagine that many of us have been in conversations that seem to go on and on and on that never seem to come to a conclusion. And that can be very painful for a number of reasons. Uh, not only might you be wearied by all the words that are spoken, uh, but it seems as though you can never come to an agreement. There's no resolution. Uh, maybe at the conclusion of a conversation, you thought there was resolution, but then the conversation, the matters come up again. And it feels like you're speaking to the same issues over and over, rehearsing, rehashing, 
relitigating all of the issues. Been in conversations like that before. Uh, you may be bothered by the fact that God no longer speaks as he did in the past. That his speaking has come to a conclusion. No more words, no more revelation. But you see, the Bible presents that as a good thing. Nothing more needs to be said because all of the matters separating you from God have been settled in Christ Jesus. And that is why he provides the final word. In Christ, all matters are closed. And God will not reopen. God will not relitigate. God will not rehearse your past wrongs requiring penance or added acts of contrition. His son is his final word. And yes, it's a word that brings conviction for sin. It's a word that calls us to repentance. But it is a word of mercy and forgiveness secured by Christ calling us to faith in him, comforting us even with the last words out of Jesus' mouth in his earthly ministry upon the cross where he says, it is finished. This is why within Protestant reform theology, historically there's been an emphasis on the sufficiency of scripture, that it is enough. And it's important here, though, that we see that the reason that Scripture is sufficient is just because Jesus is sufficient. God's Word has come to a close because Christ's completed work has satisfied all things that you might stand before God in His righteousness. No more words are required because we have everything needed through God's Son. And the final hymn that we'll sing together is How Firm a Foundation. Hopefully we'll sing that with vigor. And the first line, you may remember, says this, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? God has spoken conclusively. Now another thing I want to draw out here, along with God speaking conclusively is how God speaks to us directly. And this is the second point, that God speaks to us directly, even though God's speaking is described here as being conclusive, and in the past, it is directed, the writer of Hebrews says, to us. This conclusive word, spoken through God's Son, is to us. And that's part of the contrast the writer of Hebrews is developing here. Long ago, God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
Now, you might conclude that the reason the writer of Hebrews can say this is because this letter is directed to those who actually heard the Lord Jesus with their own ears speak to them, that he has spoken to us by his Son. But in fact, we know that they had not. And we know this from the book of Hebrews itself. If you have a Bible open, you can look at chapter 2 and verse 3. And it says there that this salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And so even they, those to whom this letter is originally addressed, had never heard Jesus' voice from their own, from, uh, with their own ears coming forth from his own mouth, but through the witnesses that he had sent. Yet nonetheless, the writer of Hebrews says, he has spoken to us by his Son. And if that can be said of them, then it can be said to us as well. That in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Though the message come to you through others, meant by God for you. Directed by God to you. Any of us who are parents here, at least more than one child have had this experience. Maybe you've had this experience in other ways. That uh, you as the parents send one of your children with a message to the other. And there are different ways that message can be delivered. Maybe the child sent with a message simply says, you need to be quiet, or you need to come downstairs, to which the response may be, who are you to speak to me that way? Why should I do what you say? Or maybe you have a superior at work, your boss, who sends a colleague to tell you something, and how they convey that message is going to affect the way that it's heard. If it's clear that it comes from your superior, then it's to be heeded. The same as your word as a parent is intended to be heeded, even if it's sent to them by another. Right? This is my word to you. It comes as my word. It comes with my authority. It's to you from me. And Hebrews describes God's word, what he has spoken, though in the past, as, as, as possessing this abiding type of authority. And there's a, there's a hint of this. We'll flesh this out a little bit more in the third point. But if you look at verse 3, where we stopped reading, the Son who has spoken, it says, upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word of his power. It's an interesting phrase. Uh, we may think of the power of someone's word, and that typically conveys a person has a certain charisma, or they can phrase things in such a way with a tone of voice where it comes with an impact, the power of their word. But here it describes the word of his power, that God's word expresses his power. God's word isn't sometimes powerful, depending on how it comes to you, and at other times is not. His word always expresses his power. Uh, through his word, the writer of Hebrews says, the universe is maintained. What God has spoken directs the course of history in every detail, including our own lives. The word of his power. 
You may be familiar with what the writer of Hebrews says just a little bit later in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is a living word, though spoken long ago, it is an active word. It is a discerning word. Inwardly discerning your own thoughts in your own hearts. A discerning word spoken personally, directly. You think of the image of the sword. That's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe God's Word. A, a sword forged long ago still wields the same force and the same power. As He continues to use it in our lives, it is spoken to you. It is spoken to us. A very uh, simple application here. If you are neglecting God's Word... Uh, might it be that in vain you are attempting to escape his power in your own life? Might it be that you're seeking to hide from this word of his power? Again, as Paul calls it, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And what this means is that if we're to correctly read God's word, it, you cannot keep a personal distance from it. As though you could simply consider what this meant back then for those people. If you're to read it for what it is, you must consider what God is saying to you. He has spoken to us. So God has spoken conclusively. God speaks to us, we can even say, directly. And the last thing that I want us to give our attention to is the significance of God speaking to us by His Son. Look at how the Son is described beginning midway through verse 2. His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe, as we've already seen, by the word of his power. Much could be said, uh, much theological significance in these brief statements and we'll speak some to that. But here's the primary thing that I want us to consider. The focus in these verses from the start is not so much on what is said, but on who is saying it. Not on what is spoken, but on who has spoken. And that's significant. Focus is not on what is said, but on who is speaking. God has spoken to us by His Son. And what God has said about the Son in just a few statements, again, is quite vast. Uh, think about how he describes the Son's relationship to all of space and time. He's the appointed heir of all things, it says, standing at the very end of history. But more, he's the one by whom all things were created, standing at the very beginning. He is both the Alpha and the Omega, who also presently upholds the universe by the word of his power. The beginning, 
the end, who is present in all things in between. Nothing is outside of his reach. The Son, through whom God has spoken his final word, encompasses the whole. Past, present, and future. All the many parts he holds together. When he speaks, unlike you and me, there are no contingencies of which he is unaware. Nothing in all of history that he fails to take into consideration, even as he speaks his word of grace into your own life. But more than this, not only does the writer of Hebrews in these opening verses describe the relationship of Jesus to us and to all of history, uh, but just as importantly, if not more, he describes the son's relationship to the father. If you look at verse 3, uh, these verses were very important during the early church, centuries prior to the Reformation and what uh, are called the Christological controversies of the 4th and the 5th centuries, questions about the nature of Christ, uh, his divinity and his humanity, things that were discussed and debated at the Council of Nicaea. We read the Nicene Creed this morning, the uh, Council of Chalcedon. And, and it should be noted here as we think of this day as commemorating Reformation Day, that the Reformation was not a redo. It wasn't a, a rethinking of all things. It was a recovery of what the church had historically believed built upon Scripture. Um, such as is expressed in places like the Nicene Creed. What is the Son's relationship to God the Father? How is He the same? How is He different? Uh, well, this passage, along with others, were very important in answering those questions. Uh, here is the Son, not created, but the one by whom all things were created. Uh, the Son, the radiance of God's glory. You think of light radiating, and theologians have pointed this out, that the radiance of the light as it shines forth cannot be separated from the light itself, and, and neither can the Son be separated from the Father. The radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature, distinct from yet the same as. And so we can stop and think about these statements and all that they tell us about the sun. Things that we've already confessed this morning, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, so says the Nicene Creed. Now, some of us may look at all of these fine distinctions that have been made over the course of history, uh, whether it's in the Christological controversies of the 4th and 5th century or the time of Reformation or sometime in between, our hints sense and our eyes can kind of glaze up over. Do these things really matter to me? Uh, remember I said earlier the focus here is not so much on the what, but on the who God has spoken to us by His Son. And, and something that we struggle with is that we live in a very pragmatic age. Uh, we're very interested in the what and the how much more than we are the who. 
And I think that's why we can breeze past descriptions like this rather than stopping and considering the richness of what is said about God the Son. We want technique. Uh, we want teaching that tells me what I need to do. Uh, we go to YouTube in order that we might find efficient ways to solve some problem. We, we Google it, whatever it may be, and that sets certain expectations in our lives about how we want things to work with a measure of efficiency. We want to get it done. And that is a temptation in the church as well. We want to get to the point. We want to know the application. We want to know what this is supposed to mean for me to do for me. But imagine for a minute if you related to a person that way. Who are you for me? That's your value. What are you going to do for me? The what, the how rather than the who. No intrinsic value in this person, but only in what they do for me. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about the what of God's salvation. But it's all grounded in the who of the Savior Himself, that we would be drawn to Him would we treat the Son in that way? With whom Hebrews begins simply in terms of his immediate value for me? Hebrews begins with the Son not focused on me, not focused on my problems, my needs, but the Son as the radiance of the very glory of God that we would be drawn to him, that our attention would be captured by him, the exact imprint of God's nature, the beginning and the end, who encompasses and directs the whole. Remember those five core convictions guiding the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. Scripture is sufficient because Christ is sufficient. God's grace for you is sufficient because Christ is sufficient. Faith is sufficient because Christ is sufficient. God's glory alone of which the Son is the radiance. Uh, God's Word draws you when read correctly to none other than the Son Himself, that we would behold Him in His glory. As Hebrews says again and again in the pages that follow, describing how Christ is superior to all that has been or is or will be. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it is as you behold the glory of Christ that you will be transformed from one degree to another into his very image. Remember the voice from heaven that speaks in the Gospels as Jesus is high up on the mountain with a few disciples and it describes him as being transfigured before them and seen in his glory and the voice comes from heaven saying, this is my 
son. Listen to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that by your spirit, you would give us ears to hear. Even as we are wrapped up in the many things of our own lives that bring discouragement and doubts, would you draw our gaze to Jesus. And in him may we see the whole, the radiance of your glory, the one who stands at the beginning and at the end and who currently upholds all things that we might find comfort as we look to him. May that be true for us through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name, amen.